Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are indeed thankful that you have shown kindness to us. In fact, it is your kindness that actually brings us to a place that we would change our minds about your son, what he's done, and about our works, and that they don't actually help. And we're thankful then for your kindness to us. Help us to be those that would find that it's not in our own strength that we have to be kind, but your spirit would produce that fruit in us if we would just rest at your right hand. And we can actually direct that fruit, that kindness, to other people. Other believers need it, and there's just other people in the world in general. that we can direct that kindness, and perhaps even through some of that, you might open doors as we have that opportunity to explain why we have a hope that actually causes us to be kind. Thankful for the time together as we open your word. Ask that we might allow your spirit to be the one that would teach us, and we would thank you for it. Amen. So, our study on God's covenants that we're looking at today, and we're going to be looking at the first two covenants that are mentioned in the Word of God, and we're going to, before we're done, talk about how one of those covenants affects us. One of them does not affect us, and one of them does affect us. Both of them encourage us with regard to God's faithfulness. But let's ask a couple questions at the beginning. Number one, can somebody give us a very simple definition of a covenant? Contract. It's a contract. It's a contract. It's exactly what it is. A covenant is a type of contract. Now, if you really want to be fancy and have people think that you're super smart, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this word because I have, I've only read this word. I've never listened to anybody pronounce the word, so I'm probably going to say it wrong. But a suzerain vassal treaty. That's what I want. No, I don't want you to learn that. But seriously, when you read Bible study stuff that's being written by people over the last 40 or 50 years, they don't talk about the next part of this, that what kind of covenants do we have? What are the two key kinds of covenants that we would have in Scripture? What? Conditional and unconditional. Yeah, if you have a conditional covenant, then you have an unconditional covenant. Conditional covenants, if God makes a conditional covenant, then what does that mean for us? We can break it. What? We can break it. We can break it. Yeah. We might not fulfill our end. Exactly. What does an unconditional mean mean for us? God does it. God's going to do it regardless of how we how we respond. And that's important. And that's that when you read these 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 scholars today, they're going, suzerain vassal treaty. And I'm not trying to mock their stuff. It's just, to me, it's, it's always interesting that when we teach, we have to go back and find fancy ways of describing it. And I sure like the way I was raised. You have conditional covenants and unconditional. I can get that. That's not too hard for me to understand and appreciate that. Um, I trust when you're raising your kids that your love for your kids, largely, is unconditional. They don't say, I'm going to love you if you're good. Now, you're dealing with them. What you provide for a child might be conditional. We're going to go bowling. As long as you are <laughs> filling these <laughs> qualifications. But I'm telling you, if, I have to, if we're beating heads all week long, don't think we're going to do that bowling trip. I still love you, but we're not going to go bowling. Get the idea. We all understand that. We have things in our families that we are unconditional with the way we raise our kids. And there are conditional things. And we do that because that's the way the world is. And you're training your child to realize, hey, you know, you go to work and you don't perform. Your boss 
probably is going to say, you can find another job uh, in the world like that, except maybe today they're reluctant to do that. But anyway, <coughs> so having understood those, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to put in here, and we're going to look at the first of these two covenants. There's two covenants that God makes with Noah. We're going to look at the first of these covenants. But I, I, I just really want, I'm going to take some time for you guys just to kind of read through the first part of this to remind ourselves the background, why this even comes up. But I'm not, this is not the main thing we're teaching on today. So now it came to pass, when, and I'm reading from the New King James, when it came to pass, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, sons of God are what kind of beings? Spirit. Spirit beings, okay? We would usually refer to them as angels, okay? So the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for them of whomever they chose. So you got angels marrying women, human women. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive or contend with man forever, for he indeed is flesh, and his day shall be 120 years. Therefore, there were, New King James has the word giants, in the Hebrew it's the word Nephilim, fallen ones. And we've traced this out before, and when you look at the Nephilim later on, you find out that the Nephilim were indeed giants. In fact, one of these guys slept on a bed that was 13 feet long. Why do you tell us that his bed is 13 feet long? Just to tell us that he hasn't got really fancy big furniture? No, to tell us this guy was big. He was tall. Okay. And therefore, the Jews, they understood this to be giants for many years. So there were giants or Nephilim in the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore to them. These were mighty men, men of old, and they were men that were famous. Okay, there were men that were famous. Uh, so we all know that there's people today that we have, and some of those people may have questionable character, but they're very famous and they're role models for people be simply because of their fame, not because of their character. And likewise, we have these men that are really big. They're very famous. People like them because of their size. They're impressed by this. Verse 5. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually or all day. In other words, man, all they could think of was evil. Now, I think you need to put that in the context of what he has just said. They aren't looking for God for help. They're looking to these big, tall men, these powerful men. That's what they're looking for in this context. In verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, and he was perfect or complete, <coughs> ceremonially unmessed up, in his generations. In other words, you went everywhere else and everybody, all these other people were getting mixed up in this problem that's happened with these angels. But Noah is clean of that. He's clean of that. His sons are clean of that. His son's wives are clean of that. Noah's wife is clean of that. So you've got these eight people at least that are clean of that. Maybe there were some others that weren't, that were not messed up in it completely, but they really liked it. Okay. In this regard. And it says in verse 11, and the earth, um, 
Oh, I skipped over the middle part of this. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11, And the earth also then was ruined or corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh. Not just human beings, but all flesh. Even the animal life is messed up in this problem. That's why he's going to wipe out even these animals in this. They had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. The gopher wood, we've been over this before. It's actually kafar wood. It has to do with wood that was covered with pitch. It's not a type of wood. It's not like oak or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a, a resined wood that, that they covered with pitch or, re, or heavy layers of resin. Uh, make rooms in the ark covered inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you will make it. The length of the ark will then be 300 cubits, 50 cubits. The height, 30 cubits. Uh, width, it's 50 cubits. Height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set a door in the ark, and you shall make a lower second and third decks. And, uh, and behold, I myself will bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under the heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of the animals or the beasts of the field after their kind, and even the creeping things of the earth after their kind. Two of every kind will come with you to keep them safe and keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself then all the food that is to be eaten. You shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. So God makes a covenant. It says in verse 18, he says, I'm going to establish or make firm a covenant with you. That covenant is to keep you alive and to keep your family alive and to keep these animals that, I'm going to, that are going to be caused to come to you to keep them alive. That's what this is. It's a promise to keep them all alive, all that are going to be in the ark. Uh, in this regard. However, what it says in here is that they have to come into the ark. So is this conditional or unconditional? It's conditional. They have to actually come to the ark. If Noah would have stood there and said, I'm not going in the ark, or one of his boys would have said, I'm not going in the ark, or one of their wives said, I'm not going in the ark. It's not like God's going to pick and toss, pick them up out of, and throw them into the ark by force. So, they're going to willingly come. So it is conditional. Now, I, I'm not going to, I didn't chase this down for this study because I'm trying to focus mostly on covenants. But we have a statement that Peter makes over in 1 Peter chapter 4 about the fact that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And I would understand by that that one of the things that Noah was doing was he was trying to tell people, knock it off. What you're doing down here is not the way we honor God. God is different than the way you are treating these tall, these tall men, these people, this progeny. This is not about them. It should be about God. That's one of the things he's doing. But the interesting thing about this is, is that there doesn't seem to be any interest that there's anybody who wants to go into this ark apart from Noah and his family. You don't have these other people lining up going, oh, we're going to get in there. Of course, not yet. Yeah, they may want to after God has shut the door, they may want, but we don't know that. I mean, we can presume that. 
but we don't know what this flood was like. You know, this flood may have come on them because when God actually describes the flood, I mean, he opens the, the, he opens the heavens in such a way that it dumps in a way that you and I have never witnessed. But he also causes the fountains of the deep to burst up. So we got water coming from above and coming from below. And it's a, it's a pretty incredible flood. And God does save them. This is a, but it is a conditional covenant. I just want us to understand this is a conditional covenant. There is something they have to do. They have to enter into the ark. Okay. So now let's go look at the second covenant. Second covenant, chapter nine. Well, I want to. I said to go to chapter nine, but I wanted to catch one last verse on, on covenant number one. Go to the end of chapter seven. Pardon me, especially for those of you that can't just flip a page. You've got to tap your iPad or something. Figure out how to get there. Seven twenty-three says, "So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things, and the bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah." And those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And then the waters prevailed or remained upon the earth 150 days. So a little less than half a year that the waters are actually completely over the earth, keeping it submerged for this period of time. So now let's move on to covenant number two, the second covenant when we come to chapter nine. And most of us understand, we've, we've all, we're not here to teach everything about the flood, but when they come off the ark, they finally do. Noah sends out the animal or the birds, and eventually one comes back, and then one doesn't return, and they finally realize that God wants them to come off. They open the door. If we go to verse 1, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air. This has changed. This is not the way it was before. Um, this is one of the reasons when that serpent comes and talks to Eve, that Eve isn't freaked out that there's talking serpent because there wasn't a fear relationship between men and beast in the past. This is something that starts when they come off the ark. Uh, and he goes on, and uh, they are all given into your hand. Verse 3, every given, uh, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Notice every living thing. So they could eat anything. They could eat the crickets. They could eat the worms, they could eat the grubs, they could eat the bat. I'm saying that because those are things that under the law, God says they can't eat. Okay, right? Those are those things that they can't eat uh, at that time. Uh, I've given all of them uh, to you, even as, uh, even as the green herb, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand <clears throat> from the hand of every beast, I will require it. From the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by, by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made him. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. And then God spoke to Noah and his sons and saying, As for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I, I establish my covenant with you, <coughs> and never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Well, let's be clear now what he's talking about. He's establishing a covenant 
with all of these creatures that he is never going to again cut off all life from the earth. Have there been floods in the, what, four millennia since this, since this event? Yeah, there have been floods, absolutely devastating floods. But have any of those floods actually cut off all life from the earth? No, they cut off life in a region. May sometimes be a very fairly big region. But we've never had a flood in that time since that, to my knowledge, has even <clears throat> flooded the entire North American continent or the entire South American continent in the time since uh, in this way. So this covenant that God makes here is to not destroy the whole earth, as he says here uh, in verse 11. He's not going to destroy the earth with a flood, maybe in a region and in places in this. Now, this covenant is unconditional. There's nothing for them to do. The first covenant, they had to get on the ark. This covenant, there's nothing to do. It's just God's going to do this. This is what's going to happen. God's going to make this covenant. He's going he's to seal it. Now, I didn't put any of this in the outline, but if you go to verse 12, it says, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant. Now, some of these covenants had signs. We're going to see eventually that there's a, a covenant that God makes with Abraham that has a sign. But he says, this is a sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for the perpetual generations. I set my rainbow or my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Again, it's not saying there won't ever be floods, but he says there's never going to be one to destroy all flesh. I want you to go back with me to chapter 2 here in the book of Genesis. Go back to chapter 2. And um, I'm going to find my verse here. Let's go to verse... Let's go to verse... Uh, Oh, I'm still not finding the right verse here. Should have had this. Oh, there it is. Verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. In other words, there was nothing being cultivated is what he's getting at. It's just This is just kind of wild is what he's getting at. There's, not, there's no cultivation taking place. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. See, there's not a cultivation taking place. But a, what's that next word? A mist. A mist. A stream or a spring. There's different ways that this word can be understood. It can mean that the earth itself, uh, you see this, I don't know if any of you ever know, pay attention to this on Saddle Mountain, but Saddle Mountain, this time of year, bone dry. Mostly. You could go out and there's places on Saddle Mountain where you'll actually see kind of little green shrubby trees growing out the side of the hill. And if you go up there, there's actually moisture down below in the rock that's coming out in springs. And it waters. And this word that's translated a mist, that is one of the ways that that word can refer to. It can refer to small springs that are flowing. So it's either a mist or springs. They were coming up out of the earth, from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. Where do you and I normally, well, this doesn't count for the Columbia Basin, <laughs> generally. But in most parts of the world, if you farm, where do you get your moisture? From the sky. Around here, 
it does come from the sky. It just takes a while for it to be collected and eventually down here, and then we pump it on the fields out here in this way. But we normally, normally in most parts of the world, they're waiting for the rain to provide what they needed for their crops. And in fact, that's a very big deal in the Old Testament for Israel was that God was going to send the rains at the right time of the year for the crops to germinate and then was going to send them what they called the later rains, the rains after the plants had grown up and now they have to fill their, their heads of grain in or whatever it is they're raising. They needed rain to fill that in, okay? And God was going to cause the rain to come at the, at the right time. And they did have irrigation back in those days, but that was not what God planned for the people of Israel, was to irrigate their land. He was going to have them at that time do it with rain that he sent. So this is the way it had been before. God didn't cause it to rain. It actually says there was no rain on the earth. It tells us that in verse 5 here of, of Genesis chapter 2. We go back over here to chapter 9, and he gives them the sign of the rainbow. We call it a rainbow because what, what's the, when's the only time you see this? When it rains. When you've got rain in the sky. Yeah, you can see these. Sometimes you ever see circles out there, and if you're in the right position, you see a rainbow in there because essentially the it's creating artificial rain. But you don't see a rainbow if they're just pumping water through rills in the ground. You don't see them then. You see them when there's rain in the sky. So they didn't have this. So this was a whole new thing. Following the following the flood, now we're going to end up with our what we know is our normal cycles of rain, evaporation, everything, and it gets in condensation and rain, and we have this cycle that you all learned in, in uh, physical science when you learned weather. Uh, and that starts, and one of the products of that, that was a reminder to these people that God was never going to flood the entire world, was there, there was that, that uh, rainbow in the sky. Now, on a science level, which I'm not a science expert science person on this, but one of the reasons that, that you're never going to have this flood again is because now we have this cycle in which you're never going to have in the sky the volume of water that it is going to take to flood the entire earth in the way that you did at the time of Noah. Because at that time, you'd actually had most, most people, most Bible science Bible scholars believe this, and there is evidence even in uh, normal secular physical science that they think it's sometimes that there is something that accounts for what we know as this, this ring that was around the earth and we now call it ozone out there. But at one time, the Bible would teach that there was actually a canopy of water. It tells us, back that, tells us that back in chapter one, that when God created the earth, he separated the waters that were above the atmosphere from the waters that were below the atmosphere. And that's not like us where we have clouds up there and water down here. That was actually this ring of water that circled the earth. It was like the earth was inside a, a bubble of water, a, a bowl, a sphere of water that was like being inside a jar. Actually affected the earth. So he puts a sign in there. A sign that this is unconditional. There's nothing you, you and I can do about this. We, we, can't, we can't ever change this because there, we have no ability to actually put that volume of water back up there like God did, that took the power of the God of the universe that could create the universe and create the earth in that fashion. So, we have a conditional covenant. Build an ark, get in the ark, I'm going to save you in the ark. There's something they have to do. This one, there's nothing. It's just totally on God's shoulders to guarantee that he's never going to flood 
the earth in this way again. That's what this one is. Now, because of that, and I want you to take your Bibles now and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Because of this covenant, because of this second covenant that God makes with Noah, God has a different plan for dealing with the earth. He is going to destroy the present universe, not just the earth even, but he's going to destroy the present earth by fire. In fact, it was interesting. I was just reading a science article this last week uh, on my, when I was going through, I always read my Google News when I'm reading in the morning, and one of the articles was on, on Mars, and there are some uh, um, scientists that are now looking at Mars, and they think they don't know they think if there was ever was life on Mars, it was never very dramatic form of life because they don't think Mars ever could have had, held the volume of water to sustain life as they would like it to be because it doesn't have the right size. These are secular scientists that came out with this and they're looking at this. And I thought that that was kind of interesting. God created our world the right size, the right environment, the right distance from the sun. You've probably been through those things and listened to science films or read stuff like that in biblical science and find out just how perfectly positioned and designed this planet is for the life that God put here. God has a plan for our planet in the future that because he's never going to destroy it again by water, he is going to destroy it by fire. And I want you in 2 Peter chapter 3, I want you to look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come, mocking after their own lust, their own craving. And they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as it, as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, when it says there, where is the promise of his coming, are these people that are going... Oh, I was wishing Jesus had come, but he's not showing up. Where is he? He's not showing why, why are they saying, oh, he's not coming? Because what is the, what is his coming involve? It involves judgment. That's the whole issue. The whole point of their saying he's not coming back is to say he's not going to come and judge us. Because when he shows up the next time on this planet, and Jesus himself said this, he's going to come with judgment. He's not coming back for, you know, fun holiday and everybody get together. He's going to be coming back and it's going to be judgment. There will be people that will rejoice in his return, but there are going to be people that are going to dread it uh, at that time. And all of this, just as a, as, as a very quick aside, goes back to the fact that back in chapter 2, you have false teachers that are basically teaching a perverted version of grace to try to take advantage of Christians. And one of the things that they have to do to try to persuade Christians, and this is why Peter has to tell, tell these people to pay attention to this, these people are going to come and mock. And they're going to mock the fact that the Lord is going to return. And it says, verse 5, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by a word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Now, one of the words, and we've talked about this before in verse 5 at different times, but that word, it escapes their attention, is there's a word in there, fellow. And that word fellow means they want it to escape their attention. They don't want to see anything that would make them think 
that he actually has entered into history in the past, has dealt with mankind, has judged, such as with the flood. And notice what he says there in verse 5. He says that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed, and we have two things, out of the water, that's the Greek preposition ek, and through water, that's the Greek preposition dia. And what he's trying to, what he's looking at is the fact that there wasn't just one flood, there were two floods. There was a flood of judgment in Genesis 1-2, and there was a flood of judgment in Genesis chapter 7 and 8. Two floods. Two floods. Two times that God has entered into the world and entered into judgment. Now the first one, he didn't enter into judgment with us. He entered into judgment with Lucifer, Satan. Second time, he entered into judgment with mankind. But both times, he has had to judge the world in this. Verse 6, through which the world at that time, and when he's talking about world, he could be simply talking about the planet, but I think there's also a good possibility with the word cosmos there that he's talking about the system. That flood actually totally disrupted, turned on its ear, this system, because he inundated it by water, and that system then came to ruin. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth that are now, they are being treasured up, being kept for a day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So he says, what, what's happened here with this, when we're looking at this creation here, they're actually being reserved. Oh, I missed the word. I think when I was translating out of the Greek, I sorry, I missed the word in there. They're being treasured up. They're being kept for fire. <laughs> you, miss, you can't miss that word. In other words, the first two judgments on this planet were, were water judgments. The next judgment is going to be a judgment by fire. And we could probably spend the whole rest of the morning looking at both Old Testament and New Testament verses that tell us exactly that. Moses knew that. Did you know Moses knew that? Moses says that you've actually kindled a fire that's under the base of the mountains that is going to consume all of this. He knew that. That's 2,500 years ago. And he knew something that, well, to be honest, a lot of Christians don't even know that God is planning to destroy this whole planet and everything by fire. It goes on down here in this context when he's talking about this destruction. I want you to, there's our, our, our uh, word by fire, but I want you to go down to that. I'm just going to keep reading because I think it's good for us to read through this. Verse 8, but do not let this one thing escape your notice. Don't let it escape your attention. Same word that he used of the way they wanted to escape their attention. He says, don't let it escape your attention, beloved, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Do we have any kids that are good at math? Do we have any good kids, kids good with math? If one day is equal to a thousand years, how many years has Jesus been gone off the planet? About 2,000 years. So if a thousand years is just one day, from God's point of view, how many days has Jesus been gone? Two days. He's only been gone two days. Okay? By the way, I always find it interesting. That's the way Peter puts it. If you go back and you read the psalmist, and I, 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 whichever one it says, I don't know if David's the writer of that psalm, but he says a thousand years with the Lord is like a watch in the night, about a three to four hour period of time. 
So it's even shorter. He's only been gone not even half a day. <laughs> not even half a day, if you, if you look at it from that. But one way or another, he really, from his perspective, he hasn't been gone long. It's just from our perspective, because we keep time a little different than he does. And so he reminds us, this is the way it is, verse 9, And the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some would consider slowness, but he is long-suffering or patient towards us, not determining that any should per perish, but all should come to repentance. That's not a verse about that he wants all unsaved people to get saved. That's This verse is about us. And what he's saying is his plan is he, he hasn't planned that any of us are going to come to destruction. His plan is all of us are going to change our minds. Now, doesn't necessarily mean we're going to change our minds while we're breathing this air, but we are all, in, in the end of this, we're all going to change our minds. There's not going to be any Christians that are reluctantly going to go, going, now, this is not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> I'm waiting around. It doesn't happen that way. Even those believers that are saying, no, there's got to be all this stuff that happens. you got people that are all millennial, people that are post-millennial, post-tribulational, and all of these things. We are pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, meaning we believe Christ will come back before the seven years of Daniel's seven, Daniel's 70th week and before the thousand years. But there are, there are genuine believers that have held to some of these different positions, and I guarantee you there's not going to be a one of them that's going to go, no, can't be like this. I've got to go through seven years of tribulation first. When the Lord shows up, they are going to be more than happy to see him. They will be more than happy to see him when he shows up. And so, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which, that is, in the day of the Lord. So this tells you that the day of the Lord is more than just those seven years, in which the heavens will pass away. That doesn't happen until the end of the thousand years. You could go to Revelation 20. This happens just before the great white throne judgment. That the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and all of its works will be burned up. Now here, the next verse, is a verse for you and I to stop and think about the significance of all of this stuff coming to an end. Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and a God-honoring or true devotion to God type, type, type of life? I'm trying to take that word godliness. That Jim, Jim's messed me up on that term. I'm so used to that term. Godliness was easy to say. But, but we've talked for a long time that I think that it really talks about honoring God. And as he's been going through and demonstrating, also demonstrating a good devotion to God. But he says, that's the way we ought to be. And Paul, at Paul's point, Peter's point here for us to learn when we're talking about this, this covenant that God's made is that, guess what? I'm not going to flood the earth. I'm not going to destroy the earth with a flood, but I am going to destroy it in the future with fire. So you, believers, ought to think about how you look at this world and your life in this world and all this stuff in the world and look at it and say, it's all going to burn. I do this. If, if, if you feel like I'm pointing the finger at you for any of this, you need to know I'm pointing the finger at myself as much because I know that I struggle with stuff and life in this world. And it's really easy to be wrapped up in this stuff and living in this world. But I have to remind myself, you know, one second after I take my last breath, none of that stuff's going to mean anything. I shared this at one of the other Bible studies, but I don't know, I think two years ago, maybe, 
because I couldn't tell you exactly how long it was, but maybe two years ago, maybe three years ago, Rebecca um, Joslin, every once in a while she posts, I think almost like every Friday or Thursday night, she used to post like a song on Facebook. And I'd click and go, I don't know that song. I'd listen. Oh, I like that. But she posted one by Casting Crowns two or three years ago. And this guy's talking about, I want to leave a legacy. I want to leave a name for myself. And I'm going, what in the world? This guy? He's actually not. He's saying he doesn't want it. But my hearing is so bad. I'm listening to this and I keep thinking, what? This is a crazy Christian song. This guy wants to do. He doesn't. That's the whole point of the song. I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care about any of that. The only thing I want is that if I'm gone, I just want people that know Jesus. That's the only thing that counts. And you know what? Actually, it's a really good sentiment. It's not even a sentiment. It's a good biblical idea that when you're gone, the only thing that people ought to really be able to remember, hopefully, is what you spent your life on in terms of demonstrating Christ-likeness. And I have to say, that person built the most magnificent structure. That person drove the best car. That person was able to do this. That person was so smart, they always knew all their math facts. Whatever it is, I don't care. There's, it's different for different people. There are people who go, I don't really care what kind of car I have. Yeah, but they've got something else in the world that's a big deal to them. And Peter's saying, if we look that all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, burned up with fire, what unique sort of people ought we to be? I wonder what we would be like as Christians if we really just started looking and we spent every day reminding ourselves, God wants me to work. God wants me to, to have a good testimony out there. But just remind, remind yourself, all the work I put into this, it's all going to burn. And God is not going to reward me for the fact that I've invested my life in this earthly stuff, whatever that might be. It's Like I said, it's different for each and every one of us. Well, you know what I mean. Verse 12. Looking for, eagerly expecting, and being diligent for the coming of the day of God, on account of which, so we're looking even, he says, beyond just the day of the Lord. At the end of the day of the Lord, Everything here is burned up. He says, we're looking out to the day of God. Do I have this one up here? Yes. He says, we're looking out there to the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with an intense heat. See, the flood destroyed... What? What this... It flesh and... The world system. Where? On earth, where is this destruction going to, what's this dis destruction going to extend to? The entire universe, even the heavens are going to burn up. It's not just going to be a, something that destroys this. It's going to destroy everything. It all is going to burn up. It's all going to melt with an intense heat. Verse 13, then he says, but according to his promise, we are looking for, we are looking for. Um, and that word that's translated looking there is the word to eagerly expect. It's something we're eagerly anticipating. New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will settle down and dwell at home. We have, let's put it this way, talking, as Ronnie was talking to us about um, how people are reacting to these things. And if you're guilty of this, listen. Because I have to watch myself, because I'm guilty of it sometimes. 
but we don't sometimes like the politics in our world. We don't like the economic decisions they make. We don't like the taxation. We may not like the people that are governing us at the present time. But do you know what? It's all part of God's plan, believe it or not. And if you are chasing, trying to fix this world and make it righteous and fix this government and make it more fair, it is a fool's errand. It will not happen. That is not what God put you here to do. Did you hear that? God did not put you here to do that. And if you tell yourself that, you are lying to yourself. You are here to demonstrate kindness and love despite the corrupt fallen system. Righteousness is never at home in this world. We, however, are looking for new heavens and new earth where righteousness will be at home. We need to look, when we look at this stuff, and I keep telling my wife this, you know, you read the news, and I'm foolish. Every morning I open Google News and I read that stuff, and I tell her some of the stuff in there, and I said, this world just keeps burning itself down. <laughs> God's going to burn it up. But you ever feel like that? Like they just keep lighting matches and throwing more fuel on their fire? Worldwide. Worldwide. We are looking for new heavens and new earth. I hope that's your anticipation. I hope when you read some crazy thing in the news, it makes you go, I can't believe these people that you go, that's right. This is an unrighteous world with unrighteous people and I'm looking for something better in the future. And God's going to burn all this up. He's not going to fix it up. He's not going to clean it up. He's not going to throw a new coat of paint on it. He's going to create, what does he say? New heavens and new earth. And by the way, that new, if you didn't guess it, in the Greek, it's kainos, meaning it's a whole new kind of new. It's going to be something very different than what we're accustomed to. I think in one respect, at least because righteousness is going to settle down and be at home, that's going to be something that we have never witnessed in our lifetime. Therefore, verse 14, Beloved, since you look for these things, since you are those people who are eagerly expecting these, be diligent to be found in him in peace. Would you say that your life is characterized by peace? Would you say that as you look at the world and the stuff that goes on around here, would you say, hmm, my life's characterized by peace? Or would you say, is your, your life is like a constant, oh, I can't believe this world. Just the opposite. We ought to be found in peace. We also ought to be found spotless. How do you found spotless? It was a world, word that the Jews really understood well because it had, had to do with not getting yourself messed up with all the stuff by diving in and all the mess that the world's in. You still got to work, right? Do you, have to, do you have to pay your bills, Jim? I have to pay my bills. You have to pay your bills, right? You have to do those things. You, there's a proper testimony in the way you relate to that. But you know what? As a believer... You can spend so much time and invest so much of your life in that that you become immersed in it and it is what characterizes you rather than being spotless and blameless. And he says, hmm, God destroyed a world in the past because the thoughts of men, because the imaginations of men's minds was evil all the day. And in lots of ways, I don't know that that has changed. I think in the time since the flood, I, I think we got back there pretty fast. But it is as much the truth today in what goes on in the world, probably as it was then. That issue probably involved more of the Nephilim than just what we might also consider. Hmm. 
the things of the world. But it's just an encouragement for us to think God had to destroy that, that in the past. He's going to destroy this too. And Peter just makes just such a wonderful, wonderful call to his readers. Have you ever stopped to think if, if all this is going to burn? What kind of people ought you, ought you to be? When this is all done, what percentage of your life actually says something about God and what percentage of your life said something about what you invested in this system? That's a question that's between you and God. And I'm going to have to be honest with myself. There's way too much of my life that's too invested in this system. So if you think, like I said, if you think I'm pointing my finger at you, you need to say, you need to know I pointed it at myself as much, really, genuinely. I'm not just saying that to try to be nice, <laughs> just to make you feel like you're better. No, no, I think a lot of us struggle with this. But we don't have to be. We don't have to struggle with it all the time. We can always keep in mind, this is going up someday. It's all going up in flame. And stop and say, God, I want to do the things you want me to do today. Some of that's going to be going to my job, working my job, doing those things, attending to all these things out here. But there's something bigger and more important than that, than just those things. Definitely more important things than just that. Because <laughs> we are looking for something so, so much better than anything we've ever witnessed. If you have any questions on any of this, you're going to ask them as soon as we're done. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to be together today. Covenant that you made to Noah that he had to get on the ark along with his family. And a covenant that there was nothing that he could do. And you did not make a covenant that you were going to destroy the world by fire. But you have told us that you are. And it's a demonstration to us that there are things that you can say. And you don't have to make it as a, as a contract. It's just the way that it's going to be. And help us, as, help us, God, as believers living in this world, realizing we have responsibilities down here. We have a testimony here in the world. But help us just to keep those things definitely in check so that they don't run our lives, that we remember you know, we've got th something so much better coming in the future and that we're living our lives down here, meeting those responsibilities with the anticipation that all of this will be gone and we've got something in your presence that we can look forward to. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the attention of these individuals. And I ask that you might encourage us as we go out to be those that, as Paul said, or as Peter said here, that we might live lives in holiness and godliness. And we would thank you for that then. Amen. And I apologize, Jim, I used godliness there at the, out the door. So. <laughs> Thanks, Tim.